Hello again, everyone. It's three o'clock. I hope it's all right. Hello, everyone. It's three o'clock. Our final and concluding 30 minute conversation with our speakers. The way I wanted to frame this conversation is both retrospectively and prospectively. Uh, I don't want to have a hardcore agenda, but I do want to pin the four themes that Jonathan Tran so helpfully outlined. And so maybe I could just invite uh, Jonathan to share some of those themes again to stir our imaginations. So let's, so I, I, I want to, maybe I can give a little backstory here. So in 2017, uh, Isaac Kim and I organized our first Asian American theology conference as graduate students. And part of that was to bring in scholars and practitioners in the same room for mutual accountability so that the theory didn't um, become ungrounded from actual practice and that the practices of ministry uh, wasn't ungrounded from the insights of scholarship. It was really successful. There was a lot of uh, mutually um, beneficial and generative dialogue, conversation, and accountability. And we expanded that um, basic structure in 2019, and we really added more scholars from the Asian American studies field. So not just theologians that were scholars, but histor historical scholars, um, social science scholars, political scientists, et cetera. And again, the, the audience response was powerful. It was palpable. There was something more going on in the room at the time. There was always a bursting at the seams of the questions and the conversations. And we always had to artificially stop the schedule to move on to the next item. And, and now in 2021, uh, the, the registration count, the attendance count, it's been really robust and rich. And so I think this issue of how to organize the conversation and the identification of key components for the organization of that conversation is extremely fruitful and helpful. And so I just wanna have a popcorn style kind of conversation, but I wanna just ask Jonathan again to share some of his thoughts regarding these um, four things, what made him think about it, and, and for maybe e even to share some more of his thoughts. So Jonathan, you wanna comment, please? Sure. Um, sure. It really does go with this sense that uh, there's a number of kind of popular conversations out there around race um, and the kind of ongoing sense that it doesn't quite capture lots of things that a lot of people were uh, that are and have been thinking about. Um, my book was my one attempt to kind of make a bed that I would have to live in um, and to find other people who have common thoughts that haven't found expression. So um, so my way of thinking about it is in terms of racial capitalism, there are also many other kinds of ways, many of which undoubtedly will be better. So I just began thinking about like, what are the ways we can continue this conversation? Since I think at least from, from where I'm sitting, the, the conversation this, the last couple of days have been so rich and energizing, how can we go forward? And I didn't create a structure for how that would go forward. I did suggest people like, Melissa and David helping lead some of that. I simply wondered who needed to be in the room at the beginning, at least some people, uh, though I'm sh for sure there could be others. But you know, certain uh, academics we need in the room, um, certain organizers we need in the room, 
Um, we need, uh, I think we need congregations um, because they're kind of the kind of local communities that nurture community organizing, academics, et cetera, et cetera. And then we need the space to be super hospitable to all other kinds of people, including people who are not as bought in, who are asking uh, genuine questions. So uh, it was more just thinking less kind of how do we do this, but kind of who do we want to do it with? Understood. Thank you, Jonathan. That's super helpful. And so folks can just, why don't you just raise your hand and then that'll help us coordinate amongst ourselves. If you're led by the spirit, please speak up. Yeah, Easton. I resonated a lot with uh, Jonathan's um, sort of invitation to these different types of people um, and the work that they're doing. And I was reflecting on that a bit uh, for much of the afternoon and thought about how, um, I, again, I'll just use my term for it, systematic listening is so important to all of those fields. If you're a researcher doing field work, if you're an organizer, if you're as an activist organizing, if you're a pastor listening in a congregation, this is a skill set that everyone needs, no matter what group you're in. Um, but you're doing it for different means, right? And what I hear is that those means need to converge somehow. For a long time, academics have been a little bit siloed. Activists, you know, that, I mean, activists in the church certainly have, you know, quite a relationship to work out. And so there is this question of how do we create a convergence? Um, we can all agree all four are important, but if we're going to move forward together, uh, how, right? Uh, and that's, that's, I think, the next, the next phase, just echoing what uh, Jonathan said. And I think it's going to have to do with leaders of organizations, uh, people, professors in the academy, uh, literally doing a project, doing some kind of project together. <laughs> um, somehow that maybe the Asian American program can host, David. There you um, go. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it can start with a smaller project that includes one congregation, one community, um, you know, organization that's organizing and one, uh, and, and some academics, you know, it can start small. You have to start small somewhere, but then you can build from there. Um, yeah. Those kind of partnership models. That's excellent. Um, I'm gonna just keep, yeah, Melissa, please jump in. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no, never mind. Okay. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So sorry, the, um, my computer was acting wonky and I couldn't unmute myself, which is my worst nightmare, not being able to talk is, is just a recurring nightmare I have. Um, so, I'm thinking about all of these things, and I'm thinking about them in relation specifically to what Sung and Morrow talked about yesterday, and how there was surprise among progressive activists that she is Christian, and that she is a minister. And it makes me think that we need to do a better job of being who we are in different spaces. That's a very vague statement of saying when we are in our faith context, I think we could do a better job of speaking authentically and honestly and courageously about how we are also people who are activists about social justice. Okay, And when we are working in activist social justice organizations, I think we could probably do a better job of speaking honestly about how we do so out of a commitment 
to living out our faith values. And so there is there is one aspect that I'd like to lift up. The other thing I'd like to lift up is something that um, Dr. George said in the last session, which is working first with what's right in front of you. I, I forget the precise say uh, uh, phrasing of it, but it makes me think about a book that transformed my life in 2020. It's a book called Politics is for Power by Aiden Hirsch, a political scientist at Tufts. I keep bringing up this book because what he recommends is useful for people of faith who want to have an impact on their congregation, their community, their nation, but all people who really care about making the world better and living out their faith authentically. One thing he says is focus on the local. I think there is a really big tendency to treat politics as a hobby. And that's something that Hirsch talks about quite a bit in his book. But what if we think about engaging in justice work, engaging in politics as a, a form of care and being accountable to the people who live immediately around us? And I think that the orientation towards doing work, not just as intellectual ideological work, but as means of actually showing up and building trusted relationships and providing for the material needs of the people immediately around us is maybe a more useful place to begin. So I highly recommend reading that book. I'll put it in the chat as, as something that I think might be provocative and useful for people of faith who want to do good in the world. Awesome. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, please, Jillian, jump in. Yeah, I just really want to thank um, you for inviting me to this conversation. And um, as I guess I'm the only one that's not American. So um, my my ongoing um, concern would be how would this relate to me and other people who aren't American? Like, why would we care about Asian American theology? And I think it's, it's well, first of all, America is pretty pervasive and white American Christianity is also quite pervasive. Um, elsewhere. And so um, I think we had this conversation as well, um, David, um, that there's like um, mega churches in from America that has church plants in Hong Kong and that um, and that it's they are just um, playing videos of sermons of what's been playing in America. And how would that why why are Hong Kong people going to these churches and why do they find um, sermons addressing an American audience relevant for them and how do they and pastor and how does it all work and it's very fascinating and so the white American Christianity is actually much more pervasive than just locally in America and also as I was talking to Easton as well how um, being Asian American and not being in Asia and America. And how, and there are a lot of these people in the diaspora. We we met like um, another individual who's um, in Estonia. And so, um, and also Asian American, um, we were having this conversation um, in, the, in, in the lounge. And so, and how do you, these people now in the diaspora, um, contribute to this conversation. And so I think there are two folds to this ongoing conversation in that how do we how 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 do we draw people who aren't 
necessarily Americans into this conversation. And those who are actually um, Asian Americans, but now outside of both Asia and America into this conversation. And I think that would be an interesting take. That's a fabulous question, Jillian. I want to throw it back to the group. Does anyone um, want to want to chew on it and share their thoughts with us? Yeah, Lucas. Um, just uh, improvising a little bit. I, I really appreciated uh, Jillian your your talk, uh, as well as uh, part the part of Easton's uh, that that I caught uh, being myself uh, actually. Uh, Chinese American Canadian who is uh, his family uh, still in Hong Kong and um, you know uh, I'm sure like many uh, uh, Cantonese uh, or people of Hong Kong descent in America uh, really being struck by among other things uh, the eerie parallels between police brutality in uh, America and uh, the actions of the Hong Kong police uh, uh, over the past year in relation to protests. And so, you know, just to take that as one example, uh, I don't think a lot of people know that um, despite the escalating, um, you know, discourse of a new Cold War between uh, China and, and America, American police have played a, a critical role in training the uh, Hong Kong police force. Uh, that. Um, going further back, uh, when we think about uh, the, the, the Cold War, uh, America's uh, uh, support for the, for the Khmer Rouge uh, is another uh, part of Cold War history that escapes notice. And so I think empire is a really important concept for talking about why, you know, uh, to go back to a, a phrase that I, I think about a lot from Martin Luther King, that we're all bound in a single garment of destiny. Um, and that phrase, I think, has been sentimentalized a lot, but I think one of the reasons why uh, the diaspora and Asians in America uh, have, a common, um, have a common destiny is because of empire. It is because of um, the way that, that Asia has, especially now, finds itself uh, suspended between two you know, great powers with imperial designs and uh, which are offering these competing narratives. You know, I talked about the, the narrative of Caesar uh, the other day in Luke 2 and how uh, the gospel, the Evangelion, provides uh, a rival message uh, that was so threatening uh, uh, to uh, Augustus. So, um, yeah, I really want to affirm the importance of Asians in America looking beyond uh, our borders and thinking about how uh, being Asian in America uh, entails uh, solidarity with people who are, who are beyond the borders of, of America. And that's actually a point I make in my open letter, which is that what American politicians do affects the whole world. And therefore, uh, what Christian nationalism looks like in America does have ramifications for the whole world. It is why Ted Cruz can, can market himself as a champion of Hong Kong rights and then turn around and deny temporary protected status to uh, uh, Hong Kongers seeking asylum. Uh, it is in the name of uh, a particular view of God and country that allows him or uh, enables him to selectively uh, support Hong Kong. So, you know, those are just my, my thoughts off, off the top of my head. Thank you, Lucas. That's extremely helpful. Would anyone else want to respond to Jillian's um, question about 
Asian American theology and its relevance. Yeah, Jane, please jump in. I just wanted to highlight some of the work that's being done because there are a number of scholars who are working on these questions, particularly in terms of US Asia and particularly um, taking historical perspectives, but there's actually just a lot of historians doing um, work about kind of US evangelicalism in an international context. It's like a whole growing subfield within diplomatic history, which is the, the field I was originally trained in. So I'll just drop a few links in the chat, but yes, Jerry just dropped exactly. So Helen Jin Kim's a historian at Candler at Emory. Her book is coming out, I think this year with Oxford and it's essentially about how South Korean and US evangelicalism, how they were basically, they made each other, um, <laughs> right? So they were inextricably intertwined and she looks at this relationship during the Cold War through the lens of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, World Vision, and I believe Campus Crusade for Christ now called Crew. And you know, she, I think the kind of endpoint of the book looks at how these collaborations or these organizations in many ways, they contributed to the rise of right-wing evangelical movements in both the United States and South Korea. And so these are things that I think also, you know, I know there's a number of scholars who are writing about South Korean politics and how kind of right-wing evangelicalism has had an outsized influence on South Korean politics. I know, I mean, so I don't know as much about, well, Justin C, I'm sure you might know his work on Hong Kong and the umbrella movement. So there are folks, um, so if folks are interested, even if you're not an academic, I think a lot of this work is actually quite accessible. Um, and even for folks who are interested in just broader stories outside of the US-Asia connection, there's historians like Hannah Waits, who's a postdoc at Harvard, who writes about um, Campus Crusade for Christ or crew projects and how um, crew has been involved in particular projects in places like Russia, um, Rwanda. There are a number of African countries she looks at. So how kind of Christian, right, American kind of US, I should say US conservative evangelical Christian ideals have been projected um, through the international reach of these organizations. And the last thing I'll say is, is just, you know, I think exactly the sentiment, what you expressed, Jillian, that's exactly right. I think any historian who studies anything remotely related to Asian America recognizes very clearly, right? There's this saying that, you know, Gary Okihiro is a historian who said, you know, who says, um, you know, Asians came to America because Americans first went to Asia. So there is an inextricable, I mean, there's so much kind of embedded in that sentiment, but I think it conveys really well that <laughs> it's about, right, this whole story that we're telling, we're all part of the same story, if you frame things quite broadly. And um, migration, race, religion, all of these things are, you can't understand any of these histories and any of our present moment, right, without kind of looking beyond the United States. So I completely, I wholeheartedly resonate with what you're saying. And I, and I hope that folks even outside academia can kind of adopt a much more um, expansive understanding kind of where we sit. It's not just about US history, it's actually about broader histories as well. Thank you, Jane. Yeah, Jilman, please. Yeah, just to build on that, yes, there's, there's a strong transnational relationship with the United States and South India. And just to build on what Jane was saying, not just there's a lot of research that's to be done, not just with uh, Western institutions and agencies going to uh, foreign countries, Asian countries, but indigenous organizations. You know, uh, uh, I know many first generation Indian Christians have started uh, nonprofit organizations. 
and then sending missionaries, creating uh, community development programs, and uh, being uh, trying be influential not only here as well as back home. I think that's an area as well that is worth uh, uh, exploring. Excellent comments. Very excellent comments. Thank you for sharing the resources as well. Easton, did you want to jump in? My very practical response to how do we foster a more trans-Pacific and transnational conversation uh, on this issue is to look at the example of uh, some of these new media outlets like uh, New Bloom and uh, in Taiwan and the Laozan Collective, but perhaps addressing it through the angle of religion um, or at least for some scholars to contribute their trans-Pacific analysis to that because those, those media outlets are, you know, in, in that interconnected way, so. I don't know if that came through. My internet's so, not great. It did. I, I, what I caught was uh, the new me this, these new media companies don't abide by standard nation-state boundaries, right? These are global enterprises collecting news and information and stories across boundaries. And this is just the new normal now uh, to, to see, and I think, Jonathan mentioned an ethnographer or an ethnographic theory that that didn't simply see traditional boundaries, but looked at people in their relationships and allowed the people and relationships to set the terms of engagement. And what I'm hearing is uh, technology, as we have used in this conference, changes, changes how we shape our conversation, our speech towards one another, our engagement with one another, another. And so this is tying back to the digital ethnography theme from the previous session. Uh, this is all worth our thinking seriously about. How does technology and media change, um, change our, what is local? I think, you know, Jonathan mentioned partnering with local congregations and i think local congregations are really trying to struggle with what do we what does church look like now um i think one of the questions from an earlier session was do do digital ethnographers check out reddit channels and gaming platforms where a lot of people aggregate i heard something about house party i think and one of the podcasts that uh I follow Time to Say Goodbye. They have a very active Discord channel. It is a it is a virtual community on Discord, which I think House Party is similar. So there's, I don't know half the things I just said. <laughs> I just know that they exist, and a lot of people share their ideas there. Um, other thoughts along this line, or anyone want to raise uh, a new topic for thinking ahead prospectively for this conversation? Um, I was just going to, uh, uh, just just on the practical end of things, I really like uh, uh, everyone's comments about trying to get this conversation to be more transnational and focused. Uh, hmm. It's it's more of a, uh, just the recommendation that um, we need funding probably, that's going to be a big issue. If we can find ways in which we can bring some of those scholars here, or uh, in a very radical way, maybe bring that this conference elsewhere uh, around the world. 
Oh yeah. If there are any funders out there, hit me up. <laughs> Let's talk about how we can give this uh, discussion some legs that puts in practice the trans-Pacific context. This is really important. That's a good point, Jerry. Others? Crowdfunding, that's good. Well, perhaps this is a good place for me to um, fi find a way to express my heartfelt thanks to all of our speakers, to the steering committee, to all of the attendees who have spent um, the last two days in a, in a new platform with a new community trying to have a different conversation on what I broadly call Asian American theology. This has been such an engaging space. The lounge tables will be open. Uh, yesterday, some of us were hanging out in the lounge area for an extra hour, an extra two hours. So please uh, head out to the lounge areas. Some of the exhibit booths um, might still have some staff. This is the end of our uh, conference. Please stay posted to our email announcements and newsletters. For those who are registered, you are automatically registered for future announcements, future conferences. My plan is to have another virtual Asian American Theology Conference in approximately a year. And there will be um, smaller events before then. And so my heartfelt thanks to all of our speakers and to my steering committee of Bonnie Lin, Darren Yao, and John Huang, and to all the attendees. Thank you so much for making this uh, a wonderful conference. Peace be with you.